2: Good morning, and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, professor of pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. A child's behavior certainly affects a parent's well-being. We heard this morning on national news that on a recent survey, over 50% of parents say that their children are having increased mental behavioral health issues in the home and that it's affecting them at work and home. Well, the reverse is true also. A parent's mental and physical and behavioral health can affect a child. For children, the issues, if not addressed, become long-term problems into adulthood often. Early recognition of those problems in the home are an absolute must for children to have a good, healthy outcome. Right? So today we'll talk about what you grew up with and how it may have affected you. We also are lucky to have Dr. Courtney Walker, psychologist at the Center for the Advancement of Youth, back to help us navigate through this topic. But before we bring her in, I want to remind you about some information that we've known from a study that was completed years ago, back in the 1990s. Many of you have probably heard about the ACES study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, but today I just want to remind you about it. We've talked about it on the show before, but there are some key findings that will help us better understand why this topic is so very, very important. And so just bear with me for a minute. I want to talk to you about these. So the, the ACES study um, looked at how development and prevalence of risk factors for disease, health, and social well-being throughout the lifespan are connected. And the Center for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente, um, a health um, organization in California, collaborated over about a decade ago, and they took... 17,000 patients and looked at them as adults and questioned them about what happened to them in their childhood. So it was the largest study ever done at the time on that topic. The majority were white, 80% were white including Hispanic white, 10% black, 10% Asian, equal numbers of men and women. Most had attended college, uh, almost 75% and most of them were 50 years and older okay so these are predominantly educated individuals predominantly white you might think that their risk factors were low but what they questioned them about was what happened to them in their childhood and what they they looked at adverse events like Abuse, neglect, household dysfunction, significant illness in the family, mental illness in the family, death of a parent, and the like. And what they found was that the greater number of adverse events, the more damaging it was to the ultimate outcome of that individual health wise, not just mental health wise, but health wise. So that that study itself really looked at the more the issues around adverse or traumatizing events that children have. And what the study found was consistently um, with pretty content, compelling evidence that that individuals who had, Negative experiences that were traumatizing to mental behavioral issues were damaging to their health. Okay, and it looked at um, certain things like um, what the traumatic event was and and how adversely affect it affected them. It also looked at not just the health but longevity. And one thing that I just want everybody to listen to pretty carefully is that longevity changed. On average, children who were exposed to six or more ACEs died as adults at age 60 or below. 60, okay? Many of us who are listening right now or talking right now are over 60, okay? Children without ACEs died at age 79. Now, that was back in the 1990s, and I know things have bobbled around a bit. But that is something to keep in mind. It, it affects your how long you're going to live, those adverse events. So a traumatic childhood... Takes off twenty years of an, on an average of an individual's life expectancy, so I guess my point today that I want to bring to home is that we need to look at what's going on with our children, our children in our own homes, how much they're being stressed, our children in our schools, the children of our future. These important skills that children develop in their early years lay the foundation for their future. And if they're traumatized during these important years, the laying of that foundation has some bumps and baubles that are gonna be lasting. And so what we need to do is make sure that we take a look at this. We're looking at Mississippi's children, um, trying to make sure they're ready for the future workforce, right? Um, It's not just about children. It's about the welfare of families, and it's about financial welfare of our state is the bottom line. So on the whole, everything that we do with our children, whether you have kids or not, It's also your responsibility to be involved. So, listeners, I'm going to throw a few questions out there. Did you have an experience that you think may have affected the way you approach life now? Do you think perhaps something that happened to you as a childhood has affected some of the issues that you have with smoking or drinking too much or using other illicit drugs? Do you think that you've been trying to self-medicate because of something that happened to you in your childhood? Do you have a child who's feeling stress, or do you know of a child that's feeling stress? And do you think that is putting added stress on you? Have you sought help? And if you have, what have you asked? We'd love to have you give us a call today. Let us help you through these ways to lessen stressors, either the past or the present, because um, we know there's a lot of stress going on right now. Um, not just COVID-19, but much else that's been happening in our world. Lots and lots of stressors. So so welcome, Dr. Walker. Thanks for coming in. As always, you, you always impart wisdom. Um, so thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be back.
2: So we're really trying to concentrate on on topics around children and how we can prepare children for the future. I, I know many of you, I'm just going to say this, because I've said it not on radio, but I'm going to say it. You know, whenever I do a show specifically about children, we get a few fewer calls than we do when we're doing a show about adults. And I love my listeners, and I love for our listeners to call in. And I wonder if, because many of you don't have children in the home now, as you're listening, think you shouldn't be involved, but I want to implore you to think about how you can be involved as a support, as somebody out there for these children and so, Dr. Walker, maybe can you take a minute or two to talk about resilience building?
1: Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later on in the show, too. But there's multiple time points where you can help build a child's resilience, whether that's supporting a family with a new baby and helping reduce stress in terms of um you know the child tax credit that was actually helpful for a lot of families in reducing stress Um, or if an adverse experience has happened to a child connecting them with a therapist or helping professional that can help them process through that and build coping skills to kind of help cope with the symptoms that could come along with experiencing that um Experience. So, there's multiple at multiple time points, there's opportunities to build a child's resilience. And even as adults, if these things happen to you, there are multiple services out there that can help you work through that um, and maybe um, choose um, different ways of coping. Because, as we know from the ACE study, if you're exposed to these adverse experiences, you're at greater risk for adopting maladaptive coping mechanisms like smoking, drinking, things like that. But you can also intervene now as an adult to interrupt that cycle. Um, this is not a cause and effect type of thing. This is a, these things put you at risk, but we can do things as a society, as family, as helping professionals to help um, mitigate the risk for our, our children as they grow up.
2: Right, absolutely. We're going to go ahead and take our first call. We have Stephen in Boonville. Stephen, thanks for calling.
0: Hey, good morning. This is somewhat of a, uh, a heavy topic It is um, to, to, to be carrying because I've, I've witnessed so many children through my life, um, some some of my grandchildren and many in, in our church that we have attended. And even at one time, uh, we heard a pastor at our church up in Memphis um addressing those issues and he pointed out at that time he said uh, believe it or not more than 75 percent of the children that were attending the sunday school classes for the junior age group next door in the building were from broken homes Mm -hmm. and um i i came from a home that was not broken my my mother passed away um when i was 16 my father remarried so all of that was lasting and there were normal um what what i considered normal um disagreement became my parents we were going up but i grew up in a family of five kids and it lasted until her death and then uh same with my my wife's parents they stayed uh together until the death of one of them and my wife and i have now been married it'll be 44 years next month and we had determined that we were not going to to uh to divorce if at all possible that we were going to work through our problems and set the example for both of our kids. Well that idea went right out the window. We we stayed together, (laughs) but both of our children have ended up divorced, both of them having grandkids and it seemed like when when my first granddaughter uh, was experiencing she was witnessing all the traumatic changes all of a sudden. And and I thought, just think at that time I said she's gonna be carrying this with her for the rest of her life, and I actually went and talked to the attorney that was involved in it. He said, I'm being honest with you, he said, you know I can't discuss this with you, it's only between the two parties, but I have to commend you, because most parents or grandparents are wanting to do everything they can to go ahead and rip the couple apart, and here you are trying to hold it together, Mm -hmm. but what you can expect now is to see your grandchild grow up maladjusted as if it was the norm and that's what i have become aware of that Mm. brokenness seems to be the norm and i know that sounds like a downer thought but i know there is help out there and i am thoroughly grateful for any help that is taking place for children that are growing up maladjusted because that became the norm decades ago
2: Yes, yeah, Stephen, gosh, you, you're bringing up a topic that does affect so many, and about 50% of marriages will end in divorce, as we've talked about that many times on this. But just because divorce happens doesn't mean that a child has to be maladjusted. Back to that same point that Michelle and Dr. Walker were making. And, and there are ways to make it better. As we've talked about, if parents continually involve the child in the divorce and fight over the child and um, engage in saying negative things about the parent, the other parent, there will be some difficulty. So there's a right way and a wrong way. Um, You know, as I've said before, um, children don't ask to be in in the middle of a divorce. They want their parents families together they all do. And so when you determine there are obviously some reasons people get divorced. It's better to get a divorce than be in a violent home or be in an unhappy home and have a child in that surrounding all the time. But the bottom line is if you do it right, if you act like civilized human beings and you don't fight, and you remember that you need to care for this child that you brought into the world and allow them to have a mother and father, they can end up well-adjusted. They can. It can happen. Um, I, I have five children who show that. So I just want everybody to remember there's a right way to do it. Dr. Walker, I'm going to pass it to you again. Um, I know you have some comments on this also.
1: Well, yeah. No, I agree with you. You know, and when we're talking about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, divorce and parental separation is one of those. But really what we're talking about is instability as a result of that parental separation or divorce. And so, as you were mentioning, you know, if you – if If the divorce is uh, amicable and the adults are doing it in a way that is in the best interest of the child, then you're less likely to have those um, risk factors that show up um, that we've been talking about. But let's say you were, you just mentioned, if you were in a, if there was a family and mom and dad were married and maybe there was some domestic violence between mom and dad that the children were exposed to, Mm, probably best that the child isn't it continuously exposed to that. So that could actually be reducing a risk factor uh, right. for getting them out of that. Um, but, no, I, um, I definitely agree with you. And um, there's a way to do um, separation and divorce in a way that um, benefits the child if that has to happen.
2: There are ways. There is counseling. There's family counseling. And there huh. counselors in all across the state, who who do a beautiful job of family counseling through divorce, and so as as you are navigating through this now, Stephen called, and as a grandparent, Stephen, um, you know, I'm sure my mother felt some of that. My, I grew up in a very stable home, and my my parents were married until you know my father died, and um, and. You know, I know they were very disappointed when I went through a divorce, but they were very, very supportive, and they did nothing to try to interfere and get into talking about terrible things about the other side. And Stephen, um, you know, the fact that you reached out, tried to make sure that you were helping grandparents so many times can be wonderful support. The worst thing a grandparent can do is to try to not allow a child to see the other side of the family once that happens. So to keep in mind, um, even when a parent wasn't the very best parent, unless they were abusive to the child, um, continuing to have that um, relationship is really important. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, most both of the, the uh, both sides of the offense uh, that my grandchild went through, these divorce, they were keeping peace between each other. All of the parties were keeping peace for the stability of, of my, do- my granddaughter. But what was so brokenhearted, um, seeing that she was having to be uh, her time shared back and forth between the parents' houses on weekends, and it was just brokenhearted to me to think that. She doesn't really know what is, what's normal and what isn't. And, and there are millions of kids out there who don't know what normal would be, but we, here we are calling the ideal family normal, and it just doesn't exist.
2: <laughs> you know, we, we have moved in the world of developmental medicine, instead of calling it normal or abnormal, we call it typical or atypical. I don't know if that feels better but <laughs> the the bottom line is um to to remember that sometimes um you know you you mentioned it earlier um stephen your your minister said seventy five percent of the kids in one bible study class were from, quote, broken homes. I don't really like that terminology because they're not all broken. Some of the homes are just fine with single parents or remarried um, parents, and there's good stability, and it can happen. So if we can stop thinking about broken or abnormal and start thinking about what is it that helps a home be happy? What is, does it take that helps a child to feel secure and loved and and supported and um and safe? That's the and safe That's yes, safe. and safe. So, Stephen, thank you so much for starting the conversation off. And listeners, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what does it take what did it take for you perhaps to heal if you were one of those individuals all right we're going to go back to the phones we have reba and jackson who is a healthcare professional hi reba thanks for calling
3: hi you're welcome um i'm a mental health professional with 35 plus years experience and i have two comments i'm also divorced but then now have a healthy adult son um Two things. When I've both personally and professionally helped people through uh, divorce, one thing that was very important is that the household rules be the same in both homes. So, you know, went to dad's house, bedtime was the same time as mom's house. And as much as possible to, you know, get together, maybe make a list, put it on the refrigerator, you know, behavior that's consequences and that kind of thing, as much as you can. That helps the child have the same stable rules in each mm-hmm.
0: home.
3: And I found that, that that worked very well. The second thing is I did most, most of my practice in Atlanta, Georgia. And in the state of Georgia, before you can get a divorce, you have to. it's mandatory that you take a two-hour course in divorce and children. And it was a very good course. Um, And so I don't
2: know if that's something maybe the state of Mississippi could look at and replicate what Georgia does. I think that's very helpful. Huh, interesting, Um, a mandatory course. You know, there's some, I know there are some churches that require courses before you can marry in the church. Um, But I didn't, that is very interesting, um, Reba. Dr. Walker, what do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's a wonderful idea. I do, too. um, Because it gives, like, I think like we were talking about, there's no blueprint, you know, for a family to figure out how to walk through it. And... Um, a course could be the start of that so they can know what to you know what to prepare for, what to think about, and um, that it's all in the best interest of the child. So I like that that it's mandatory um, because it sounds like those people who are making those decisions are also thinking about the welfare of the children when parents have to separate or divorce.
2: Yeah, I think the welfare of the children is a statement that everybody, I wonder though, how many individuals would push back and say that's infringing on their rights? Um, they didn't.
3: They didn't. They were not. I don't think you had the option to do that. Uh-huh. It's part of the, part of the process. And one thing, it was in a large, in Cab County, the one I was involved in, it was in a large auditorium, mm-hmm. so you're full of other people that are There's going through the same thing. Some yeah, are disgruntled but they were just very it was just very well done through an organization called families first.
2: Oh, we know about Families First.
3: Yes. Yeah, and that yeah, that's who did it. And yeah. it just, even for those who didn't want to be there, of course I didn't want to be there. I thought I knew everything. I'm a professional. Really good.
2: Well, I think it makes you stop. It's got to make you stop and think about what you're doing and why you're doing it, and and many times a lot of behaviors, when people are going through a divorce, are secondary to because because of the hurt or anger, and they want to get back right. at that right that other individual, and so um, yeah, I I would admit
3: they, ama- they also would, in that they brought humor to it, and the lady, one of the ones doing the mm-hmm. workshop, she told her story about, and you know, she's all. Cooked calm and collected at church, and he shows up to church, she chases his car at church. (laughs) Everybody does different things during divorce. (laughs) And if you can add some humor to it, you just don't feel so crazy and alone.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's great, Reba. Thank you for sharing that with us. Maybe we need to see if some of our legislators are interested in taking that one on. Um, Counseling, not Counseling to make you try to stay together, but counseling on how to approach, yeah, how to do it right. Yeah. I really like that. All right. Thank you. Uh, let's stay on the phones. We have Nancy in Canton. Hi, Nancy.
4: Hi. Um, you'd asked about what helped or what, you know, has mm-hmm. helped um, after kids have, experienced a lot of um, trauma. So um, my mom committed suicide when I was a kid, and my dad um, afterwards didn't really want to have much to do with me, Mm. so um, so we had a real conflicted kind of situation, and um, you know, needless to say, uh, my teenage years and my early um, adulthood was pretty fraught. Um, I think my major accomplishment was not you know not to be uh, become a drug addict or anything like that that's pretty much you know or crawl into a bottle cuz i think yeah. that you know those are the those are the main things that really um i think made it possible for me to continue growing and healing um and i'm now 60 and you know i've, I've tried to keep myself in therapy most of the time
0: mm-hmm.
4: um so that's really helped talk therapy i mean Fortunately, there was no stigma around that when I was, you know, growing up. And my dad really did encourage that. He mm-hmm. didn't want to talk to me about it. He mm-hmm. didn't want to have anything to do with, you know, he didn't want to talk about my mom. He didn't want anything like that. So I was on my own as far as that went. But He did, you know, clearly know that I had needs and, you know, did what he could to hook me up with some kind of therapy.
2: Um, Nancy, I have a question. um Did yeah. you have anyone else in your life who you could turn to who who gave you some support at that time in your childhood? Was there a an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or anyone else there for you
4: no that that really um i d- i didn't um I'm an only child, and uh, you know the family was uh kind of a hot you know had moved a lot my mom was japanese and um so that family was over there and there were secrets and blah 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 so really the only people i had were my mom and dad
2: yeah so, and so, and your therapist did you feel like the therapist was really that individual who helped you cope through things
4: well if it's one thing i learned through all of that was is that you have to shop for a therapist because i had a couple that were <laughs> Uh, one that was very destructive, um, and, and harmed my relationship with my father forever. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, my dad and I really went through a lot and, and, you know, we evolved an awful lot in the last, you know, 30 years. But, um, you know, as far as our relationship went, but, um, this guy really, really, uh, betrayed my trust, um, and turned my father even more, you know, against me. So, um, so you really have to shop because you don't know what you're getting, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm
1: glad you brought that
4: up. I kept going. Fortunately, it was like when that happened, I just asked for another therapist and, you know, got one that uh, was a lot less um, from a textbook, you know? She was mm-hmm. much more going by the seat of her pants. But she was at least loving, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know that she necessarily had uh, you know, she didn't have a lot of coping mechanisms to offer me, I guess, but she was a kind person and she heard me and she knew where I was coming, you know, she could really see where I was coming from and that was helpful.
1: And you you bring up a really important point about therapy in general, and I'm glad you did, Nancy. You know, um, not all helping professionals are going to be a good fit for you, kind of like in your, right. your case, right? You have to find yeah. a therapist that you click with that's a good fit and that you trust, and that trust is center and the most important for that therapeutic relationship. And it sounds like whatever this um, woman therapist did was able to um, – establish that trust with you and so I'm always a huge advocate whenever you're starting um, a therapy shop around like you said see if it's a good fit Um, you're kind of doing an interview of that helping professional to see you know can we work together we're going to be spending a lot of time together and if you don't think it's a good fit move on right and
4: the earlier you start the process kind of realize that Mm -hmm. that's where you're going you're going to be you know Rather than waiting or saying, oh, I don't really need a therapist at first, you know, t- as soon as you think that perhaps it would be helpful to, um, to get talk therapy, um, start the process then because if you wait too long, you get depressed, you mm-hmm. get, you know, uh, anxious, and then you're not a very good judge of who's helping you and who's not. Right, you know? right. So um, and it's, it's the last time you want to be, you know, the last thing you want is to be shopping for a therapist when you are really really deeply in need
1: exactly and you know something else that you said that I really um um I think hit a point with me you said your dad made that connection for you when you were a kid obviously but sometimes you know our parents aren't going to be those folks who make those connections for um for us because whether something they're going through or if you know whatever But I think that that goes back to the importance of having all helping professionals, everyone, be aware of asking about these things when they are caring for kids. And, you know, a a lot of folks don't talk about ACEs, like when you go to, like, a doctor's appointment or something like that. But I think that underscores the importance of us asking because there may not be a person in a kid's life that's going to ask about it to link them to that service or that that therapy that they need. Right. Um, So. I'm a big advocate of that as well, um, just because, you know, not all the time people don't talk about these things. We don't ask. Right. Right.
2: You know.
4: There's still a stigma. I mean, there just shouldn't be. It's a complicated world. You know, life is harder, I think, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's just the time is done when there should be any stigma at all about asking for help.
2: Absolutely done, Nancy. Thank you for saying that. There, you know, it depends on where you live. I think in certain areas of the country, probably um, it's the norm. Many people have therapists to help them through whatever, whether it's eating issues or depression or anxiety. We know upwards of probably 50% of the population is something that they could use some help for. And there is nothing wrong with that. It's sort of like taking care of the rest of your body. Um, you know, your, your brain is one of those organs. We take care of our liver and our stomach and our, um, heart. Yeah, our cardiac. We have so much emphasis on our heart issues. And, you know, we have days isolated for cardiac to just go get checked that's great. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But like you said, the day should be gone that going for a mental health checkup is frowned upon because it should it should be. The other thing I wanted to mention as you're looking for a therapist, because I'm glad you you brought that up, and I agree with Dr. Walker, you, you really have to make sure not only do you have a therapist who's doing good evidence-based therapy that's based in science and it's real and they're really trained we are better off able to check credentials on individuals than ever before with the internet and you can search anybody and mm-hmm. find out what they're about but but the other thing is even if they're well c- credentialed they may not be your match they mm-hmm. may not be your personality and so it's okay to say, you know, I'm not coming back. I'm going to go find somebody else that's a better match. Um gone should be the days also of being so approval seeking that you won't leave a bad doctor or a bad therapist. <laughs>
4: or, it could be forever to get to the point where I could do that.
2: Yeah. Yeah so well nancy thank you for sharing your story and and certainly you did go through a traumatic event but it sounds like you are you are doing all the right stuff for yourself so keep keep it up
4: yeah and the right person is definitely out there so you know somebody that gets you i mean that's really the most important
2: thing exactly
4: all right thank you
2: thank you so Before we get to the end of the show, I want to talk about a couple of things. First, signs and symptoms that perhaps there's something going on with a child in a home or with an an older individual who um, needs help. Let's talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms of what those might be. And then we can talk about looking for those resources. So um, maybe I'll start out a little bit. Um, A couple of things. Sleep. Mm -hmm. We talk about sleep all the time. So if you have an individual who, a child, who is not sleeping well at night, is waking up with bad dreams, who is refusing to go to sleep, who's waking up tired and fatigued. For teachers out there, if you see a child who comes into school grumpy, irritable, falling asleep, not paying attention, think about what could be possibly happening to them in the home. I think Any kind of mood change or irritability often um, points to something, some sort of mental behavioral health issue. Dr. Walker, I'll turn to you. I know you want to bring up a couple of those signs.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely sleep difficulties. And, you know, for some kids, it's kind of hard to pinpoint because they could be exposed to more chronic um, adverse experiences. So it's something that's always been there. So they always kind of look that way. And then for other kids, there might be, you know, their mom or dad passed away and that was an event and after that event they just changed and so i think it's important to tell the difference between the two Um, sometimes you can have those chronic symptoms and sometimes you can have symptoms that just pop up out of nowhere Um, but definitely sleep difficulties hyperactivity impulsivity can sometimes Mm -hmm. um, be a symptom of traumatic stress Um, uh, sometimes kids will play out what happened it may not be exactly um what happened but if they're playing like with their barbie dolls or with their trucks or with their their legos they mm-hmm. may try to play out a scenario that they remembered um, like
2: violent play like or violent play somebody hitting someone else mm-hmm. or something like that absolutely
1: yeah. um And, you know, anxiety, depression, Mm -hmm. and things like that. A lot of folks don't really realize that even young kids can experience uh, clinical symptoms of anxiety and depression. And so those kind of look similar to what it looks like in adults, but, um, you know, it's important to keep an eye out for. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. You know, I still think back. I think I mentioned this on the show last week, but I have to tell you about a video I saw recently that I passed around our office of a young child coming in to class late every day, mm-hmm. and the teacher would wrap him on his knuckles. I guess it was an old-fashioned film. Wrap him on his knuckles or on his palm. And make him go sit down. And so this, they showed this happening over and over and over again, still late every day. And then one day, um, as the teacher was going to school, um, he saw this little boy who had been late every single day um, walking his mother in a wheelchair, who she obviously had had a stroke or something. Walking her back from somewhere and leaving her at a particular home. I guess he was taking her to to stay with someone when he wasn't there. And um, the teacher, um, you know, it was this revelation. Like this poor child, I've been punishing him every day for something. When he was helping and had no other choice. And, you know, I think everybody that I passed that video to said they were in tears. But it's it's one of those things, if we would just make ourselves look for the signs and realize that it's all not always about an irritable individual or a bad kid who just is bothering you but there really is something else going on Mm
1: -hmm. well even that makes me think of you know sometimes kids who have experienced um, neglect Mm -hmm. sometimes they'll steal food Mm -hmm. out of the kitchen right right and you know a lot of folks they see that and they're like well they're stealing they're stealing from me no. Usually, you know, um, that child has gone maybe a period of time where food wasn't stable. Right. And so asking, figuring out, why is that kid doing that? Why does he always want to have two granola bars in his pocket? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah. So.
2: so, you know, we talked a little bit about signs, and there are many, many more. But in the last couple of minutes of the show, Dr. Walker, why don't you talk to us a, a little bit about seeking help.
1: Sure. Well, you know, like we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of different ways that you can um, intervene with ACEs and prevent ACEs from occurring in uh, children and families. And so the CDC has put out some really nice um, guidelines for how you can uh, prevent and intervene at different levels. And so they recommend one way to prevent ACEs um, could be strengthening families' financial stability. And so how we were talking about the child tax credit and things like that, that really reduces stress on families and allowed them to provide basic needs for their kids so they could focus on other elements of uh, caregiving so Mm -hmm. their children's social emotional needs being there reading to them um, that can be helpful Um, even policies that allow paid time off for a newborn and -hmm. their mom and dad right big deal big deal Um, things that promote social norms that protect against violence so supporting parents and positive parenting practices right if you had um, if you grew up in a home where there was a lot of physical violence and maybe you had physical violence perpetrated against you you may not know how to parent your own children without that you know um, harsh uh, physical um, punishment and so helping a family get in contact with a helping professional that can help them choose different parenting practices that Um, help mitigate risk um, for ACEs. Um, My most favorite, um, helping kids have a good start. Um, We know that if ACEs occur very early in life, then it can set the stage for disrupted um, neurodevelopment, um, maladaptive coping mechanisms, things like that. So if we give kids a good start by having really good quality early learning programs, um, making sure that our places where our children are going Um, the providers know about what these things are and how to ask for them and how to look for them and um, offering a support and training um, to child health and development generally. That's
2: huge, <laughs> huge. If parents are going to need to work, they've got to have a safe, good, healthy place for their children to be. Thank you, Dr. Walker, as always. This was wonderful. Thank you to our callers. If you'd like to hear the show again or any past episodes, you can listen to the podcast on your favorite podcast app by searching Southern Remedy Relatively Speaking. This show is a production of MPB Think Radio and engineered by Michelle McAdoo. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and I hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 11 for Relatively Speaking right here on MPB Think Radio.
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org
0: or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.